where we were at was 1973. Uh, we were talking about printing that you did that made the paper look like it was laid paper. Yes, yes. And you say that over a period of about 10 years, you would have worked on quite a number of those. Books in the wallpaper period. I was fascinated that you had interviewed Rocky Steiner. Uh huh, yeah. Yeah. He was a, a role model for, for us young printers. He was one of the most charming men I've ever met. Yeah. He was unassuming and uh, humble. And one of the reasons that I think they were so successful was his personality. Yeah. Because he went out and, and he was a salesman, as you know. Yeah. He would, he just had a, a extremely likable personality. They got uh, people around Boston to produce very lavish books, and private collectors felt honored that their collection of chinaware or whatever was presented in the Steinauer book, so that they had that connection and uh, the huge range of catalogs that they did. They were the premier shop in at least North America for operating the monotype machines. They had um, people who were skilled in punching the paper tape. Lunenburg, Lunenburg, When did you visit? They were printing straight from their lead, some limited editions. But they were also making uh, repro proofs on that on the kind of press that we have at Coach House, the Vandercook Press. Yeah. Uh, they were making repros. And uh, what surprised me is that we were proud of making our repros on fine, white-coated paper so it would be very precise. And what they did at Steinauer was made repros really well printed on the paper that the book would have finally be printed on. So you get the bite of, as if the type had been letter-pressed into that paper. So they knew exactly what yeah. it uh, would look like and how it would work? Because in the, in the history of fine typography, there's the challenge that the original designers had of cutting a face so that when the ink went on and slathered around the edge and made a little bit of a halo of extra ink, they designed the type a little tighter so that when it printed it looked right. So when we went to do really careful repros, our type was coming out skeleton-like. It was much lighter in color. Then if you made a correction line and put it in a page, the type would be a slightly different density. So you had to scrub all the type, ink it up and print it a few times until the whole page looked uniform and that correction line didn't stick out. So for us, the holy grail that we were working towards was the perfect page without any correction lines, so there would be none of that anomaly. Uh, that was the quality we were looking for. And you, you saw that quality from the Steinauer Press? They saw, we saw their working method that, in fact, they printed on cream paper, cream super fine, right. rather than the repro paper. And they corrected their lead type rather than pasting on the changes. Yeah. It seems to me like you, throughout your career, you see something, you like it, and you actually go there and figure out how they did it, and yes. then bring it back to Coach House. The challenge throughout my career has, has been to learn what the quality is that people are trying to achieve. Not what the machine will do, it's the vision of what you're trying to achieve. The end product. Yes. So, so you see the end product, and because you know what, that's what Rocky said in the uh, interview that I had with him. Yes. He had seen some photo reproductions, 
And he looked at him and he said, you know what, we can never do this. So he went and merged with that company, Mer Meriden. Yes. Well, so Meriden were, were exceptional, and this is another touchstone when, when we talked about colotype. Have you done colotype? Do you know what colotype is? Do you know how to do it? <laughs> do you know why it's so important? So that was a, that was a mysterious black art that was half photography and half printing. Do you know the process? Not really, no. It was done during the era of glass plate photography. And they put an emulsion on the glass plate that was just a little bit thick and exposed a negative to that emulsion such that the emulsion was a very thin sponge that was hardened by light in some places and not hardened in others. And that sponge absorbed ink at a variable amount. So the ink had a variable thickness and the grain of the photographic helped break up so when you looked at a collotype, you were looking at a variable layer of ink rather than fixed thickness dots. That's uh, why it was so fine. And that, that gelatin plate was good for about 100 copies. And then they'd make another one. So when they were doing fine books, artifacts of uh, skeletons or rock fossils or anything, it, it was for a limited audience. And yeah. they'd sometimes have to make three plates. So uh, Meriden Gravure had an old tradition of having done that. And then the gravure came along, and gravure was a system of etching into a copper cylinder fixed cells, fixed space cells, but variable depth. So the dark areas had a thicker blob of ink, but, but they were a fixed grid. And the grid was around 200 lines per inch. In our world of number systems, photographs are, are normally reproduced with 150 lines screen. So the gravure was going at 200, but they're also putting those dots over the type. So remember the gravure sections in the newspaper, the weekend sections? What would they look like? Often dark brown ink, and there was a color special picture insert because the newsprint couldn't handle the fine screens and the fine dots. Now the gravure process was very interesting because it was a copper cylinder and it went through a pool of ink and then there was a ductor blade that scraped off the extra ink. Dirt simple and it could run real fast but they had to have dryers because the ink was thick. But the printing process was so simple compared to all the rollers and distribution and I mean in our Heidelberg offset presses we have four different diameter rollers hitting the plate and that's backed up by another eight different rollers that mix it with all the taps that are turning on squeezing just the right amount of ink out of the tray for what's being taken up so the gravure system was a delightfully simple making of those copper because cylinders because of the uh, one doctor blade that takes off the extra yeah, ink yeah. and the cylinder has holes that are variable depth yeah, so they, they absorb variable amounts of ink. Yes. So there was a long period when gravure was the right way to reproduce anything photographic. And that's where Meriden Gravure came in. They made the cylinders. Okay. They actually they did the printing and they made the equipment. Yeah. The gravure process was equivalent to photo offset. Okay. So the gravure presses were special and the making of the cylinders, the, the, the plates, the image plates, was a special activity. Okay, so once it was made, the presses ran fast and reliably, and ink was always consistent. So your respect for the Steinhauer Press 
How did that translate then into what we're talking about, which is the production of your books, and when we're looking at your books, the ones that, that you think represent the, the best printing that you've done? And when was that? We were we left off around 1973, so you would have... In gone the early 70s, I was a country newspaper printer. <laughs> right. After visiting Steinau, I had a vision of being a high-quality oh. book printer. Oh, because he was... <laughs> and, and that's the thing that's most amazing about them, too, yeah. is not only did they produce the, the, the best, they also yeah. were located in the middle of nowhere, so they were able to attract people who wanted that kind of lifestyle. Yes. And uh, that in itself is... It's, it's almost idyllic, isn't it? I remember a guy, I think his name was Keith, and he was a foreman, and he wandered around the place, and he had one of those plastic things in his pocket, mm. and he had a whole collection of the right color of pins for marking up the right thing in the right way. It <laughs> <laughs> was that kind of place. So well organized <laughs> yeah. then. It wasn't Freeman, was it? Keith Freeman? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think that's... You ran it, you mentioned, yeah. Another man of meticulous taste. So then, how did that translate? You, you know, you must have seen this, and you must have been quite excited because, hey, I can I can improve my uh, product. So how did that? Where did that translate itself? Steiner Press at that time did the uh, typographic component of fine books, and the illustrated part was done by Meriden. And uh, Meriden got someone else to bind them, so there was a community there. Steiner hadn't at the time got to be real good at photographic reproductions. They didn't need to. They subcontracted to other experts. Yeah. Whereas at Coaches, I took on photography from the very beginning. It started by doing photo stencils and silkscreen, and I learned the camera work. And I built a copy camera because you can use a lens to be a camera or an enlarger. You can use it backwards and forwards, and we did all the time. So the cameras that we had to put a big transparency and backlight it and go through the lens and expose the film. You could put paper in and front light it and make film. So we used the camera backwards and forwards. And we used the system of punching the film before it was exposed and putting it on pins so that it registered. So that we had some control of layering films and doing multiple exposures. If we're making a normal halftone, like on the cover here, the man with seven toes, to make that halftone, you put continuous tone photograph, that was the norm, an 8 by 10 glossy. And you'd light it carefully. And then you'd give a bright flash exposure for the highlights, for the whitest parts of the photo. That would be without the halftone screen on top of the film. And you put the halftone screen on and give the main exposure, which was a bit longer, that took care of the middle part of the photo. And then you shine light directly from a different light source, not from the photo, to fill out the dots in the shadows. So there was a balance of three exposures to make a good halftone. When you saw what Steinhauer was doing, how did it translate itself into the actual books that you produced? Would, would you be able to say, okay, you can tell, this he's gone to Steinhauer and he's learned something and now the books look... I don't think you could. I think we became just a little bit more careful about pulling our repros and making, making really consistent that was, it. that was the goal. Not just getting it in print. Because you know in the early days, we were such sloppy printers. We printed in color ink, so you couldn't tell whether the dark the ink was steady or not. So we tricked <laughs> our, our look. And then finally we learned how to make 
a book that was printed in black ink where the black was consistently black through the whole book. So I might have learned that from Steiner. <laughs> Seems so rudimentary, but yeah, controlling yeah. the ink on the press is a, it's quite a skill. When we, uh, we were just walking over here, uh, we were talking about how a, a good collecting approach might be to go after specific book designers, and I mentioned that I picked up B.P. Nichols' journal that you published in the 70s, and it was designed by Glenn Galuska. It turns out that uh, he worked for you for five years. Yes. What set his work apart, do you think? He must be quite ill now, I guess, eh? Yeah. Is, is, is he able to communicate much? or? Um, I've talked to him on the phone a few times. He's got a friend at McGill collecting anecdotes, so there will be a recording. I hired him, and he was very surprised. He came from Chicago, and I asked him what his favorite typeface was. And I answered, I don't know, Cloister or something. And I said, well, okay, you got the job. Just because, <laughs> because he, he knew, knew the name of what? <laughs> <laughs> and it was a reasonably good book. <laughs> Okay. He jokes about that <laughs> Easiest job interview ever. Right. So uh, he was working in Chicago at a translating agency. He spent his university at St. Mike's here at New York City. He learned Russian and some foreign languages and some others. So when he was working in the translating agency, typesetting and proofreading foreign languages, we should have gone over to Richard. What's that? We should have, yeah. We should have. We should have used Richard's office. Yeah. No, there's a reading room here that's always quiet. Oh, uh, okay. Okay, so he came from Chicago and he had learned uh, Russian and a number of other languages, so why would that attract you to him? In the early days of computer typesetting, we were using computer codes. That was a language, okay. and he could handle it easily. So there was a formality of setting up the instructions for the early computer typesetting, a formality of language. He was the right person when we evolved in that direction. The, uh, event of us getting into photo typesetting. We transitioned by using the IBM Selectric Golf Ball typewriter. It just happens that Carl Dare had advised them on the fonts that they should use. <laughs> so it's a Canadian advising IBM. Yeah. So they were Carl they were, Dare wasn't uh, you know the famous Canadian type designer. He was big news. Yeah, not just he was, a, he was a designer in a whole bunch of ways. Yeah. His uh, series that he did for West Vaco paper described a whole bunch of good typographic practices while displaying their paper. They had an enormous influence on us young designers. That that's, series. That series. There's oh, like yeah. six of them, I think. Yeah. And I'm going to make a facsimile of the whole set when I get it. <laughs> well, Massey, Massey College has a set. And oh, okay. There's a few of them around. Yeah. And I mean, I got a few at the time. Same way I got the, I collected the um, monotype recorder, that newsletter that they put out. Okay. If you run into that, it's a delightful history of the development of typography in that corporation. That adds yes. the grace. What I learned in, in their series was the transition that they were making from printing from lead to doing photographic typesetting okay. and the kinds of issues involved in quality control and consistency and emotions and whether you should set film positives or film negatives and all that kind of stuff. So again, a, a learning tool. Yes. Okay, so getting back to Galuska, uh, as a designer, as far as... Well, he started collecting type, and uh, he collected wood type. He got himself a Bandicoot press and started doing broadsides. And type was relatively easy to be had then. There were places where you could buy foundry type. There were foundries that were casting here in Toronto, and there was type that was imported. 
So you could go down to uh, Sidney Smith and get a whole selection of typefaces from Europe. They had them sitting on the shelf. And you could, just like a grocery store, you could just pick the ones you wanted. They were pricey, but yeah. So, so he um, made a, a point of, of going after a, a good selection of those? Yes. He did this on your behalf, or? No, independently independent. at home. He had to cook in the kitchen. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he also shared some resources with Robert McDonald Dreadnought Press. They worked okay. together. I think Glenn got to use Robert's collection. Now, Robert McDonald made Will Reuter unhappy because Robert got a job at U of T Press Design Department while Alan Fleming was there. And Robert picked the brains of those guys and learned everything really quickly. Whereas poor Will and Alan had had to struggle and spent years learning their stuff. They were happy to teach him and then he was off. What's the name of his press? It was Dreadnought Press. Very collectible, yeah. Back to Galuska, about his design. Well, he was exposed to uh, Robert McDonald and that wide collection of type, so there was the playfulness with type, and uh, he got wood type, I think. Tim Inkster gave Glenn wood type that Tim had collected. Being a country printer, he had the local stuff, and he gave it to Glenn. Glenn, you would, would you say that his design... Began typographically. I was going to say, yeah, a lot of his stuff is different shapes and sizes of type. The famous bicycle poster. All blocks of wood. I've got the BP Nickel journal. Every once in a while we'd say, oh, let's have a typographic cover. Okay. So it was an art, a Canadian artist. I insisted on original art and typographic. I really, really didn't like us to ever use clip art. So that might summarize Galuska's early part. He um, got really good at computer typesetting. So he could read the paper tape and uh, produce good, clean pages. Now this is moving towards our holy grail of the perfect page. Because when we did photo typesetting, the tradition was you put that photographic paper, it's black and white photo paper, put it in front of the camera and photograph it. And I discovered, also with the experience at Visual Studies Workshop and Kodak Research Lab, that you could take that photographic paper that was relatively thin and turn it upside down on fresh film and shine light through the back of the paper. That meant you weren't putting the image through the lens of a camera. And that meant the type was incredibly sharp. It was contact printed. So rather than going through a blurry lens, as good as the lenses were, and the lighting around the edge of a big camera was slightly inconsistent. So we torture tested our lens and we knew that its perfect focus was more or less a donut. And we're talking microscopic changes. Mm -hmm. But we made the camera confess and we tuned the camera so it was doing its best. But contact printing type pages was just the greatest breakthrough for us. Because that meant we could photo typeset with fine serifs. We could typeset Baskerville with fine connector lines and contact print and make exquisite negatives and print really sharply and clearly. So our press immediately had a quality that none of the commercial places had. Okay, so what's the first book? Is it done that way? Yeah. Sorry. It's not going to come? Yeah. When roughly would that have been in the mid, mid-70s? Late-70s, yeah. Late-70s? Yeah. You're talking about this perfect page. Yeah. So what titles exemplify that for you? Well, that, the photographic book time, it was typeset with that method. So the type is incredibly sharp. And that the illustrations are printed duotone. That's our highest quality photo reproduction. And we tuned the color of the 
sand gray beige color we tuned it to match the photograph which we had in front of us right. so we did press proofs in front of the photograph and then remade the film the three exposures for the gray plate the three exposures for the black plate fit together register and the right color on both inks in the press so yeah so that'd be one what else uh the history of canadian photography okay. again the finest black and white glosses that could be made and we made duotone copies. So they were trying to show in the book, Ralph Greenhill was trying to show the difference between a, um, a wet plate print and a dry plate print. <laughs> so we were reproducing that wow. difference. So that was good. And uh, in that period, uh, the mill playing cards, because the there we were cards. using contact printing and film grain. And you showed me under the eyeglass the difference, and you can't see, there are no dots there. No, it's the grain of film. We did a whole series of work in our shop emphasizing film grain. So we would take photographs with 35 millimeter camera, Tri-X film, and develop it in a grainy developer, and then put that in the enlarger and blow it up, and that would be the half-tone dots used for the printing plate. Okay. So they, were, they had that uh, stone lithography look. We did a whole series of things, lots of posters. The photograph books we talked about, and there's probably a, a ten yeah. of those. Yeah, and they're for oblong, squarish oblong. Yeah, within within the nine by twelve. And those would have been from what seventy five into the early eighties. Yeah. So those those are good ones. So let's just sort of finish off Coach House the books with your imprint on them. Anything else that comes to mind that, that might be fun to go after as a series or a, another design? We, we talked about Gordon Robertson, another designer that started off yes. with you. How could you identify his books? He had a strong sense of geometry, but he did his geometry with film negatives. He designed with film negatives. He made strips and triangles. And another characteristic of his work is that he liked every color on the cover to be a custom ink mix. There was no CMYK, no. Now that cover might be printed with 11 colors. So some of those books are spectacular. The neutral gray, just exactly the right tone of gray, the right warmth, not too cold. And then, but the trick that we used related to his film abilities was start with white paper and print the color component on white paper and then cover the white paper with gray ink so that the brilliance of the color comes through without the gray interfering with it. Yeah. So those are really worth it because they're extremely high quality press work. He did a number of books at Coach House and then started working freelance for other publishers. Uh, so Thomas Allen, he was their exclusive designer for a long time. Uh, any other designer come to mind? John Ormsby? He was a student of mine at uh, York University, and I hired him, and he became a very good cameraman and uh, moved on to doing design, and then he was the designer for Canadian art for years and years. And then he moved to an, an, an ad agency and was the designer for IMAX. <laughs> Did annual reports for IMAX and ESO with uh, humble beginnings. Anyone else? We were at training ground. There was new people every couple of years. So we've looked at the designers. Uh, we're now into, say, the 80s. Anything stand out in the 80s? Well, that was the era of us doing serious computer work that was 
way different than any other printer. We had a, a clean slate, a fresh start, and the smartest people going. We were producing books using this the, uh, Unix operating system, the Bell Labs forerunner of typesetting. Because we wanted to produce clean pages, we wanted an editing terminal so we could correct it and make the prototype page with no paste-ons. And that was the incentive for us to learn the computer stuff and the latest computer stuff. But those were all big package machines made for large newspapers that were worth way, way more than we could afford. I went to a newspaper uh, trade fair and saw that the people were doing optical character recognition so that people could type and then it would go in and automatically be typeset on big equipment. But I also saw little standalone computers hooked up to the first photomechanical computer typesetters. So one of those VIP made by the Linotype company, a used one became available. So two years after they were first introduced in newspapers. And I went to a course and learned how to use the little standalone computer, and I got Ed Hale from Monolino, an electronic technician, together with David Slocum, the programmer at the Globe and Mail, with Ron Becker, who was the Unix guy at U of T, and we all sat around and said, how should it be correctly done? And the answer was an interface board that was hand-wired, and they put the scope, and David wrote software to make sure that the chips and the software worked, and the interface worked, so then we were liberated from paper tape. And we could see on the screen, just in capital letters, what our words were. Mm -hmm. Then we bought a copy, uh, open source code, from AT&T of their typesetting program, their internal typesetting program, that started off just being able to print online printers and then nine fonts. Yeah. So we got the software and David Slocum wrote stuff for it so we could use many of the fonts that were available on our photomechanical typesetting machine. Then the programs for doing it, we had to put codes to tell the machine how to change point size, how to make paragraphs, to justify all of it. So that coding was relatively complex. And Glenn Galuska was good at it. Because of his linguistic capabilities. Yes. Yeah. Right. David Slocum was sympathetic, and as a software engineer and programmer, he tried to devise ways so that Glenn could code less. And it was called macro processing. So you type one word, and that looks up the string of codes that the machine reads for the heading. So you type heading. You wouldn't type out all the things 18 point, Bodoni. No, you just type heading, and then the machine would look up. So that meant we were creating text that was poured through the macro processor or a design filter, and it would come type. So that was enormously more successful. What do you mean out would come type? Type the, the type phototype setting paper came out of the setting machine. And now, now what did this do for the like the end result? We were able to include the uh, standard typographic refinements. The FI ligature was automatic. The hyphenation was top notch. We keyed in our own hyphenation dictionary. So all the words were broken properly. And the ends of the pages were decided. So we put the page number out pages were perfect so we could contact print them. Now when was this? Throughout the 80s. Okay. We went through this machine that, that had a film master and a strobe light that flashed. We had a collection of about 20 or 30 fonts. Cost a couple hundred each. In typical coach house fashion we made a camera to build our own fonts. <laughs> we built the camera wow. and it was about six feet high and had a good lens in it. And We took regular fonts and blew them up and then shuffled the designs and letters and shut them down and 
I got a jeweler friend to make me a punch that would punch the film and go in the clips in this machine. So then we had B.P. Nickel was working on a font of his handwriting, which I thought was just totally the best thing going, to be able to have custom-drawn fonts. Because in the, in the era of lead, you couldn't... Didn't give that flexibility, did No, no. So that's a, there's a book, what, what's that? There was a book for the Art Gallery of Ontario called Chairs, where we made the font, and the, the letter H's were in the shape of a chair. So that was something that was inconceivable prior to this. Yes. Well, what about that B.P. Nickel uh, handwriting? Was there a book that you pr printed with that? Uh, no. Okay. Um, he died before that project was finished. Any other examples of newfound flexibility that, that showed up in the books? From a publishing point of view, they just looked like books, but the yeah. method of production method was totally saw. exotic. We were using the internet. We were sending stuff down to the big computer at U of T and getting things back. We were using all the full capabilities of Unix, and we developed the, uh, the gen code, which was the forerunner of SGML, and the rules for the internet. So we were the first commercial site on the internet, uh, experimenting with how computers could be typesetted. So mm -hmm. I digitized Carchet on the buzzing tablet down at U of T, mm -hmm. and we made Carchet as a digital typeface, as a research project. So you basically completed the work that Carl Dare had uh, started? Well, no, I just moved it a little bit along. We didn't typeset many things with that, but there's a couple of Coachella's catalogs where there's computer transformations that were way ahead of their time, shadow lettering, and stuff like that, that you could only do on a computer. It looks commonplace now. That's the thing, isn't it? It's, yeah. like, you know, it's like Noam Chomsky. When he first yeah. started saying what he was saying, it was quite revolutionary. Now it's sort of mainstream, so it's not so extraordinary. Yeah. Nelson Adams and Glenn Galuska worked on that advanced software for typesetting. And uh, we were very proud of having filters that cleaned up the garbage of manuscripts that came along from any supplier. So we typeset for Macmillan and we'd clean it up and we'd have Macmillan House style as a filter. And then the design of the book. So it was a standard text being put through these correct filters. And it was a little infuriating to the editors, the degree of perfection that we offered. Yeah. <laughs> there we were doing a, an art catalog where uh, the Boshi Gallery, different editors spelled it all different ways. <laughs> and when it came to the computer, it sorted it out and said, which would you like? Yeah. It will be consistent. Yeah. <laughs> I remember Chris Dudley asking for a printout of word frequency count in his poetry book. And he said, oh, I've used this word too many times, and rewriting on, on account of that. So we did stuff like that to uh, build the spelling, the automatic spell checking stuff. What do you think the, the best deal is out there with Coach House books, like the undiscovered treasure? I think it's always got to be following an author, author-oriented collection. I wish I was enough of a library kind of person to have put all Chris Dooney's books in a row. Because throughout his career, I mean, Coach House has done a bunch, and he's got a bunch done by other people. But there's a human interest story with that author in the development of his career, and him having had hands-on at one yes. time. That, He'd actually done yeah. some of the art, right? Yeah. And then uh, the Robert Fones book. Robert Fones moved on from doing a few books to become mostly a painter. And when I saw these paintings, the head paintings yeah, in the great. show, I said, there's a story behind each one of them. Write it up. So he wrote it up. And then I knew he had been fascinated with the first known version of a sans-serif typeface. So I said, let's design it. So this is Caslon Sands. There was only a few 
characters shown in the 1600 specimen sheets, but he took from that and finished the alphabet. So this is Bones Caslock. There's a book, an artist book, where the artist designed the font. So that makes it extremely special. This is about to come out? Uh, this has been out. Oh, since 19, uh, 1996, okay. Yeah, the very early use of uh, the capability of letting font design programs accessible to normal people. Right. So we've come a whole distance to finally an artist can design his own font because of the digital font design and uh, the postscript language. So yeah, we did the italic. And the goal in making a, a page of type, of course, is to not have any black spots. And the letter G, the lowercase g, is a little blobby in here. But that's characteristic. It's fun. Okay, so of course there's Michael Andrade, there's there's Chris Dudney, there's Robert Phones. And B.P. Nickel. B.P. Nickel. He's a uh, challenge to collect because although we did the nine volumes of the Martyrology and a couple of other books, he delighted himself in giving books to other publishers. Just spreading it around to all the little presses to be yeah. as democratic and fun as possible. Yeah. So yeah. they're all over and a, a good collection of B.P. Nickel would be a wonderful challenge. Also because he draws so much. So graphic. Yeah. And his children's books. Wow. What a range. And that's actually characteristic of what you've done with the Coach House Press. There is no such thing as a Coach House look. There's so many different types of books that you put out. Yes. And that makes it fun too. Well, now in uh, later times after reading about Bruce Rogers and his talk of making the book appropriate, I can see, yes, <laughs> it's a theme. <laughs> Maybe just in closing, not only have you produced books under your own imprint, but you've done a lot of printing for other publishing houses. Yes. I wonder if any particular projects stick in the mind. Well, we've printed books for Oberlin Press at the rate of, it used to be 15 titles per year, and now it's down to about eight. But there's a consistent look. It's obsessive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> four pike is down, four pike is across. <laughs> Same number of lines per page. So it's a sort of a democratic treatment of everyone that goes through that press. Yes, the house look. And in the series I did for St. Thomas, the uh, Christian poetry series, it was deliberately set out to be a series so people would collect all the books. And each book has an exquisitely printed wood engraving. Like a real wood engraving. I remember getting the first wood block. I invited Will over. Thanks. Will Ruder. Ruder. I said, Will, yeah. you have to tell me what I'm looking for. What is the quality print? Tell yeah. me what the look yeah. should be. And so what is what was the answer? It turned out that Will was way more playful than I was as a technician. I wanted to know what perfection I was yeah. trying to achieve. Yeah. And Will said, oh, that looks pretty good. <laughs> and his point would have been, this is a work of art, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I want to. Sorry, it, it is a work of art, but you're reproducing that work of art, so you want to make it as close to the original as you possibly can, right? You want the artist, I would think, to approve it. Yes, but I want, in, in printing the wood engravings, I wanted to achieve something that I'd learned from Ralph Greenhill in the history of Canadian photography. No soot and whitewash complete picture detail in every range of the picture, in the highlights, in the thinnest lines, in the thinnest black lines, correctly inked, like not ink sloshing over the edge. You, when you looked at it, it, it wouldn't look like it was under the ink. The process wouldn't certain. be apparent. 
this, there's ink on the paper and you can't see that there's in the very thin white lines in black areas, they're not plugged in. Yeah, they're okay. still printing. They're still just clean of clean white. Yeah. Put too much ink on and those thin lines disappear. That's a delightful set of uh, quality um, wood engravings. And now when I look around at books about wood engraving, I very seldom see anything that comes close to the real thing. There's copies, there's photographic copies in books that are anthologies of wood engravers, but they're not like the real thing, not at all. So the delight of having a few examples of the real thing, like a Buick cuts. Some people collect books of Buick cuts, mm. and his trick was to feather the edges so that there was less impression on the thin line, so he varied yeah. the height. And there's, they're often sort of oval shaped. Yeah. Uh, so when was that? In the 80s and 90s. So over an yeah. extended period, at yeah. least he's still doing them or not? Uh, no. Nancy Ruth Jackson has finished her career as a wood engraver. Kim Inkster at Porcupine's Quill, of course, has made a big thing of Jerry Brandis and Brandis and a whole bunch of wood engraving things. But he prints them by photographing a good repro and prints photo offset. He doesn't print from the wood. Which is what you did with yes. these particular yes. books. Anything else? We've given our collector a yeah. fair decent <laughs> list to go well, after, haven't we? There's the uh, postcard collection and there's some poster collections that uh, shouldn't be overlooked. If you go to uh, Toronto Public Library, the theater department collected all the theater posters that we printed. Oh, wonderful. So all that is going on at the same time we're yeah. publishing plays. Uh, if anything, I appreciate a collected book with the newspaper clipping, the ephemera, yeah. The errata slip, promotional card, all those extra little things that add to the book object are the thing to collect. Well, thank you so much for this uh, exhaustive, extensive, exciting uh, review of uh, quite a review. You've done. Yeah. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Stan Bevington, who is the founder of Coach House Press, located in Toronto, Canada.